Good evening and welcome to this evening's episode of the Mary Trump Show with I'm so I'm so happy I get, I get to say this with my guest Dahlia Lithwick who is the senior legal analyst for Slate also proprietor of the excellent podcast Amicus and uh, author most recently, just came out this Tuesday of Lady Justice, and uh, for my purposes, I am very grateful to be able to say my friend, and for our purposes, uh, fellow nerd adventure, Dahlia, it is so good to have you here, especially since it's such a quiet news week, and we can just focus on your book. Yeah, it's a good thing nothing's happening. That's good. Yeah, uh, so I guess you've just been kicking back and taking advantage of... How quiet everything Spray is. Spray tan. I had a spray tan. <laughs> Took six hours. Uh, well, first of all, congratulations on the book. It is, uh, it's an excellent, necessary book um, that, I mean, this should, this doesn't come as a surprise to anybody be, uh, because it's you, but it's, it's phenomenally well-written. And I think it is an amazing compendium of, narratives that that locate us very clearly in confusing times um and even though uh, much of the narrative arc of the story takes place from 2017 on um it definitely grounds us in the history of um how we got here. And one of the things I most love about the book is the way you, and I, I assume this just kind of happened naturally uh, because of, of the uh, stories you focus on and, and the protagonist of each story. Uh, we get this incredible insight into how power works both within and outside of institutions and how both of those things can work concurrently, can work against each other, how both are important in their own ways. So how did, how did you uh, get the idea for the book? And um, how did you decide to focus on the particular narratives? Uh, you did, wait, was it narrative driven or was it, uh, was it sorry, protagonist driven, if you know what I'm saying? Can I, just before I answer you, I just want to say, um, when my older son went to sleepaway camp for the first time and I had my younger son who was probably like, I don't know, seven or eight. Mm -hmm. And I realized like he was a whole fully realized person who like lived in the shadow of his big brother. I'm so excited to be one-on-one -on -one with you and not have to like, you know, kind of like scrabble for attention and be like, no, Wash, I'm talking. So I just want to say for folks who don't understand the incredibly complicated sibling relationships that exist and the competitive propensity to like seek attention on the Nerd Avenger um, family, I just want to say like, I completely feel like I'm basking in the glow of your time. And I, I just say that not to suck up, but just because none of them are here to defend themselves. Okay. So now I want to answer your incredibly serious question uh, with some sobriety and seriousness. I think, Mary, that- right, By the way, I just sorry, I just want to make it clear. You've totally staked out your claim on the Nerd Avengers. <laughs> so uh, I, would, I wouldn't worry, but I'm completely, I'm so psyched to have you all to myself. So, <laughs> okay. There you go. Um, okay. Question uh, seriously to be answered starting now. I, I think 
look, this book evolved a lot. When I started writing it, I was, it was really the depths of 2017. I think like a lot of people, it felt as though uh, the sky was falling in, that it could not get any worse, imagine. Um, and these were, a lot of these were just stories that I had covered, right? I had covered Becca Heller and the Muslim ban. I had covered, um, you know, the Bridget Amiri's chapter on, you know, the ways in which, uh, immigrant and migrant teens and asylum seekers at the border were unable to get abortion care that they were legally entitled to have. So I'd covered right. these cases and I knew these characters, yeah. but I certainly had a list of, you know, 20, 30 people that I would have happily talked about. But I think two things happened. One is I was so worried. And I know I say this a lot when we talk about the crumbling confidence in institutions that one of the things I really wanted this to be was sort of making the claim that institutions are not broken, <laughs> they're just being abused. Right. And that if you say, there's no point in my voting because my vote doesn't matter. Or if you say, you know, there's no point in my engaging uh, with the media because everybody in the media is lying. Or if you say any of the things that the nihilists want you to say, then Steve Bannon wins, right? Because yes. the whole project is to completely foment mistrust of all institutions. And I'm, you know, I frequently say, Mary, I'm the most small C conservative radical you'll ever meet because I actually believe in an independent justice department. I believe yep. in an independent article three judiciary. And so some of this was conceived as a kind of creed occur to say the law isn't what's broken. Lawlessness is broken and that the law can be used to affect huge, huge change and progress. And I think one of the things I really wanted to point out, this is around the time that we noticed that Donald was losing all the freaking lawsuits, right? I mean, he had yep. the losingest record of any president in history. Um, just presumptively presidents win most of the time and he kept losing and he lost because he was lawless. And yep. even Trump judges and even Bush judges and Reagan judges acknowledge that. And so I think a big thing I wanted to do was a, you know, as you say, tell stories, because I think these are amazing stories. These are incredible characters. I want people to see themselves in these different lawyers and say, oh, you know, maybe I'm a big firm lawyer, but I could do this like Robbie Kaplan. Maybe I'm, you know, an organizer like Vanita Gupta. I can do this. So there was that. There was the stories and the characters. But I really think the arc of this thing is a kind of at least an opening argument for the power of the law in the hands of good people to do good things. Definitely. And, and we see that in the subjects you, you picked. Uh, I mean, these are dedicated people coming at issues from very different places and perspectives, but with the same goal in mind. Uh, which is, and I believe it, it, it was Vinita Gupta who said this, and I, I kind of see her as a central character uh, or his, her narrative as central or as um, maybe the center of uh, the book because as you describe her, she's an inside outsider. She's played both sides. You know, she, she gets the job at the Justice Department uh, having done nothing in her career except sue the government, you know? And uh, that that's a really fascinating uh, transition. And then she goes back when she she joins, uh, uh, becomes uh, head of the leadership conference. So so that was, that was really cool. But, you know, they're all coming at this with 
the understanding that just sort of siloing your goal allows the systems to remain, um, again, not broken because <laughs> they're not, but inadequate to uh, the purpose of shoring up democracy, right? If you're only focusing on one thing, then you're losing sight of the bigger picture. And these these women all understood that. Here's what I would right. say to that. I think, Vanita, first of all, Vanita Gupta becomes kind of a weird breakout star of this book. And in some yeah. sense, you know, it's a complicated chapter because she's an organizer. She's somebody who has litigated all her life and then ends up at the leadership conference not litigating, but in fact, organizing other litigants and organizing groups. And I think you're exactly right. For me, it's a pivot point at the center of the book because it it's where the book goes from a bunch of lawsuits that are sort of like the thrills, the chills, the spills into, oh, this is the work. And the work yeah. isn't, you know, law and order. And there's lo no like, dun -dun, you know, like nothing <laughs> happens. She's just trying to build coalitions and build power. And so in a sense, I thought this was a chapter that people would kind of glide over, but it is a chapter that's about really deep work. And as mm -hmm. you said, about a character who just could not believe when Eric Holder said to her, do you want to come work for me after she had done nothing but make trouble? Right. And the tension that she's experiencing is not just like that institutional tension you're describing, right? Where she's like, wait, but the Justice Department, like that's the place that, you know, so much lawlessness comes from. But also I think the, the tension that she feels around the law itself. And she's one of the people who really candidly says, and I, I pressed almost every subject of the book on this question of the law really sucks for women. And if you're Vanita Gupta for women of color, yeah. uh, if you are uh, Nina Perales, who uh, in the chapter on gerrymandering, uh, you know, a, 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 a woman who does, you know, literally racial gerrymandering as her job. And I think that they raise this really intractable question that I'm struggling with. I know you think about it all the time, which is we are clinging to the law, right? And to legal systems, to the Justice Department. And yet in the worst possible way, it is in fact the object of our oppression. It is the thing that is hurting us. It was, you know, we talk about this all the time. At the founding, women were invisible and they were chattel and you could be raped by your husband and you know, apparently burned as a witch. And, you know, all of this stuff we had to invent, we had to claw our way through this system that really disempowered us deliberately. And so Vanita is one of the people who gives voice to this notion that like, yes, the legal system is racist and yes, the legal system is punitive and the carceral system is broken and it's all just terrible. And it's the best thing we have. And so I love that she's not just an insider outsider on this narrow question you're asking about what do you do with institutions mm -hmm. and how do you sort of fix institutions that are fundamentally really slow to change. But this huge question that all of these women have, you know, Becca Heller in her chapter um, about the Muslim ban is like, look, master's tools, master's house. It's that simple. Yep. The law sucks, but I'm going to use it to get, you know, my clients relief. And other people like Anita Hill are so lofty about the grandeur of, right? She's like, but, yeah. but we got Brown v. Board, right? We got Obergefell. And so I think threaded through this, that anxiety that you're sort of laying out about how much you can rely on a legal system that was always warped against women's interests to redeem women's equality and dignity. 
And that's one of the fascinating tensions. You you talk about people like Anita Hill. You talk about people like Sally Yates, small C conservative institutionalist people, both of whom, by the way, have not been well served by their institute, their respective institutions necessarily. Um, but you know, who who believe fundamentally in uh, the power of institutions, and then people like Becca Heller um, and somebody else. I would I really like you to talk about Pauli Murray. Um, whom you start the book uh, speaking about, because I think that's a that was a fascinating jumping off point uh, for the broader conversation. And most people, I'd never heard of her either. Uh, you know, which is, you know, another another issue. But uh, you know, at the very beginning of the book, you say even a woman with grievous doubts about the American legal system can leverage that system to benefit everyone, and that kind of becomes. Uh, the raison d'être in some ways of all of these various missions uh, that these women are on. I mean, you've hit on my, <laughs> this is my pain point, Mary, and it is, there's no doubt that I could have written just, you know, more about RBG, right? Like all of us have this like desperate need for heroes. And I would submit like, it's a good thing, right? That our legal hero is this like 40 pound octogenarian <laughs> who, you know, pretty much single-handedly invented uh, gender equality uh, in the 1970s, except she right. didn't, right? And right. she gets too much credit, not that she doesn't deserve the credit for what she did, but she leaned heavily on the work of many other people. And I will right. say to be fair, she was absolutely meticulous about crediting the people mm -hmm. that came before in the brief that she submitted in Dovey Reed, which becomes, um, you know, one of uh, the most important uh, gender equality cases. Uh, she name checks Polly Murray. She writes Polly Murray's name on the brief as though Polly Murray would co-counsel because she's so careful to say, these are not all my ideas. But just to be brief, Polly Murray is this unbelievable character. I would say one of the kind of prime movers of using the 14th Amendment, not just for gender equality, but for racial equality. And Polly Murray is long before there's a word for, for being trans, long before there is a word for being non-binary. Right. Polly Murray feels that she is uh, a, a boy who is trapped in a woman's body and spends I would say there, because I think at today, Polly Murray would want to be called their life struggling yeah. with that is black and therefore turned away from universities that absolutely should have admitted her is a woman and therefore turned away from uh, law schools that should have admitted, you know, encounters time after time after time uh, barriers. And nevertheless, the brief that she ends up writing in law school unbeknownst to her, becomes the spine of Brown v. Board. Right. Nobody tells her right. that Brown v. Board is based on a paper she wrote in law school. She finds out long after. And Polly Murray is this incredible figure who, you know, refuses to move to the back of the bus before Rosa Parks and who is desegregating lunch counters before lunch counter desegregation is a thing. Every move she makes is prophetic and every legal idea she has has shaped the world we live in now and nobody's heard of her. So I started with her partly to kind of make that leap away from the hagiography around RBG and mm -hmm. to say there are armies of women, many of them black and brown, who've been doing this work for decades uncredited. And I want to really probe this question of who gets famous mm -hmm. 
And why? Because too many people that are famous, as you know, better than anyone, <laughs> um, are famous. At least as well as. <laughs> yeah. I mean, get famous for, for doing what others have done before. But, but maybe, and this is the last wrinkle in this, I really want to do away with this idea that if you kind of have your advent candle and it has Bob Mueller is going to save us on it. And then the <laughs> next month it says, you know, Adam Schiff is going to save us. And the next month it says, you know, whoever the hero du jour is. And that's how we go. We ping from hero to hero and we buy the mugs and we, you know, like the memes, but like, that's not democracy, right? That right. is a branding exercise. And this is no insult to, you know, Mueller or, or Schiff, but it's to say, I love the idea of a democracy in which everybody is working as hard as Polly Murray, even if they don't get credit. And you point out late, later in the book that, you know, many, a lot of people do give credit. Uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, um, you know, these, these are, are women who are well aware, Stacey Abrams, well aware of who came before. And it just makes me wonder though, like, <laughs> why don't the rest of us, why, why do the rest of us forget that? I, I mean, in the introduction, I, I um, quote from an amazing um, essay that was written just around the time that I started the book by uh, Rebecca Solnit, the political philosopher, um, you know, where she says the hero is the problem. And she says this is just endemic, that Americans are just too in love with the John Wayne, pachoo, pachoo, you know, white hat um, guy who's going to save us all. Yeah, and I Baseball think, players get to be heroes in America. Right. And, and, and that, you know, it's just a, a, a sort of cultural norm yep. uh, that lets us uh, bear witness to heroism without participating in it. And I think that's part of it. I also think, I mean, and, and we're seeing it right now, right? I mean, we are absolutely seeing it with the January 6th uh, investigation. Like, we need to see upstanding, moral, ethical people performing virtue because we almost forget what it looks like. And so I think it's essential in a lot of ways, but I think that it's not this binary thing where because Adam Schiff is moving through the world or Jamie Raskin or Lynn Cheney is moving through the <laughs> world stipulated that's more compu complicated, but that we all can just sit back and pop popcorn. That like pop popcorn meme, you know, they're like, oh, I'm just, yeah. oh used to make me crazy because this is not a spectator sport. And so I think that not. again, one of the reasons I fell in love with the sort of protagonist of this book is that some of them just slog away. Robbie Kaplan filed the lawsuit against the white supremacists and Nazis in Charlottesville in 2017. That case didn't go to trial until 2021. It was just years of slogging, uncredited discovery, taking depositions with people who had their like minions threatening, you know, death threats against herself and Karen Dunn. And they just did the work. And I love that because I just don't think that anyone makes movies about people who are doing the work. And that's a really good reminder for those of us who've been impatient. And we have every right to be. Uh, especially when it comes to somebody like Donald, because like, how many decades do we need to to wait for one person to be held accountable for something? However, justice time runs differently. And it's not like people are just sitting around twiddling their thumbs. You know, there are people like Robbie Kaplan are putting in the hard yards for days, weeks, months, years on end without 
not only without recognition, but without anybody knowing they're doing it. So I think that 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 was a helpful perspective for me because I get I do get really impatient, honestly. But it takes that kind of dogged determination uh, to be unrelenting in the face of very little uh, positive reinforcement, to say the least. Yeah. And a lot of it is secret. Like one of the things that you and I know now in the rear view mirror is the work that went into those, you know, Mar-a-Lago searches and how unbelievably scrupulously the justice department did their work so that it would be bulletproof. Now let's see what the 11th circuit says. Let's see what the Supreme court says, but we're never going to know some of the work that went into that. And we will never know the names of some of the players. But again, I think for me, this metaphor of how law is done is really, really a lot more interesting than falling in love with whoever the lawyer du jour is, um, who's a talking head, because I think that, again, many talking heads are great lawyers, but I just think this is not a thing that happens quickly and it is not a thing that happens necessarily with fanfare. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the subtitle of your book is women, the law and the battle to save America. Um, all of the the uh, people featured are women, um, but you know the point is that they're actually they're they're brilliant, they're skilled, they're professionals, they're at the top of their game. However, it does matter. I mean, we we see uh, you know so something that really jumped out at me, um, and it was I think it was in in the the Benita Gupta section um but this idea that vulnerability is a gateway to organizing and um i i think that's that's a a perspective that is less comfortable for men first of all and secondly and and i think this is a direct quote from benita gupta uh you know what litigators have failed to do is build power and the public will for the country we want to be. And I'm not entirely sure why, but those things seem related to me. Uh, you know, it's not an accident that the people at the forefront of a lot of these cases that require, uh, in some ways, kind of using the institutions against themselves almost, right? Um, being savvy and and knowledgeable enough about um, where there's room to push right against the systems that have bound us all in ways that are not good, that are not um, fair, that are not Democrat, small D democratic um, to um, reshape, uh, reconstitute, redeploy uh, resources in in a way that uh, men might not because they're blinded to, the ways in which they inherently benefit from systems as they exist and have always existed in this country. Yeah, it, it, it's was that convoluted enough? No, no. I mean, you've. I think you've kind of. I think you've scraped on on one of the things that, um, and and the New York Times um, book review uh, that came out on Tuesday really pulled on this thread of. Um, what are you interesting? I didn't read it. Okay. Um, I mean, it pulled very, very much on this, you know, there's a whole section in the middle about me too and complicity Mm -hmm. and why women don't speak up, why, uh, they sit in, uh, kind of subordinate positions and don't, um, fight, 
uh, even when there's egregious abuse happening. And I think makes the point, exactly the point you're making, that these systems are kind of already constructed uh, to kind of push women down. And then women have to really grapple with how long do I stick this out uh, before I just, it is a system of my oppression. And, you know, uh, Anita Hill talks about this in the book, uh, Liv Warren, who was another uh, young woman who uh, Me too a federal judge. Um, you know, she talks about sort of like howling into the void of what do you do when you've given yourself to this system that does not uh, respect you or, 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 you know, hold you in any primacy. And listen, Mary, you know, you and I have been having conversations since Dobbs came down about the massive disparity between the men, some of whom were good, you know, progressive allies who kept saying you're hysterical about SBA, the Texas vigilante bill, mm -hmm. calm down. You know, the day SBA went into effect, I had on my podcast, um, uh, Michelle Goodwin, and uh, Rebecca Traster and all three of us were saying, this is the worst thing in the world. The court just nullified Roe. They did it for a tenth of the population and yep. they're doing it on the shadow docket. And the mail we got was just like, oh, I listen to your show because it's about the law, not listening to hysterical females crying and wringing their hands. And I thought, wow. so interesting, exactly what you're saying, that if it doesn't affect you, it's really easy to say, well, you know, maybe if they overturn Roe, it'll be really good for the midterms, as though that is somehow, you know, negates the cost of women who are being left to bleed out, right, um, from a miscarriage. And so I think one of the things that you're identifying is so many of the women in this book, including Vanita, including Anita Hill, talk about, you know, here's a set system that kind of stepped over Anita Hill and said, oh, well, thanks for your service. But, you know, he's going on the court, stepped over Christine Blasey Ford, said, oh, by the way, we all believe you. We think yeah. he was lying, but there's no nothing to be done. And now he's invited to all the parties and he's, you know, one of nine co-equal justices who just overturned Roe. And I think that a lot of women are really frustrated and mad and women of color times 11 because they never had the awakening that a lot of us had in June when we were like, wait, they overturned Roe. So I guess that what you are sketching out here is one of the things that I've really been struggling with, which is at what point do you just walk away and say the system fundamentally does not respect or care for women or people of color, uh, LGBTQ people, immigrants? It just doesn't. It's built to support exactly the norms and, and privileges of the founders. And at what point do you just say, like you said, okay, I cabin off my little corner and I, I chip away at my little thing. And, you know, sometimes you get a brown BB board and sometimes you get an Yeah, and sometimes you get dogs. It was actually quite painful to uh, revisit uh, the Anita Hill and Christine Blasey Ford incidents um, because for that very reason um you know i, I think those are the, those are the the ch challenges of being pushed to that point we think is there is there any reason to continue to try to work within this um can can we ever uh use the systems of the institutions to um Again, not repair them because they're not broken, but to reimagine them. I, I like to think of it in those terms. Like, I don't think you can 
tear anything down. Uh, I don't think we can start from scratch. Although God knows I'd love to be able to. Um, but uh, I think we can reimagine things because not everything is is worth throwing out, right? Um, but then there are those moments when, um, and we, we talked about this before the show started, when even people who are our allies, like legitimately our allies, don't understand the fight, don't understand the threat uh, to people who are not uh, inherently protected by the system and don't understand what their role is. Uh, and and we certainly saw that, uh, I'm t we were speaking most recently of the Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, hearings, um, and but obviously uh, that conversation was uh, motivated by the revisiting of of what Anita Hill went through um, and what Christine Blasey Ford went through, which was unspeakable. And and it's this idea, and I think this is this is this may be like one of the biggest problems of our time. That well, you know. Once, once the white guy gets in, there's just nothing you can do about it. You know, he's going to be Supreme Court ju Justice for life. Yeah, he was in the Oval Office, so it kind of, it would just be unseemly to indict him or, tr or arrest him, right? So it's it sort of, um, it just begs the question, who exactly are we protecting here? And, and what will it take? Uh, to find a way in which the um, so-called massive faceless institutions uh, bring about justice instead of perpetuating the opposite. Um, so Sherilyn Eiffel, who's one of my heroes, yeah, who was the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, was on my show and I asked her a version of this question and she reminded me and, and she's just <laughs> very much like Polly Murray, a poet. I don't think she knows how what she says sort of lodges in your imagination. But she said that we focus too much on January 6th and forget what happened on January 5th. And January 5th, if life had proceeded without an insurrection, saw two Senate seats in Georgia, entirely engineered by the work of Stacey Abrams and the yes. army of people that she has inspired and uh, helped to believe in the sort of aspirational project of democracy that you're describing, right? Not fixing, but reimagining democracy. And somehow elects like a Jew and a black man and we get control of the Senate. All that happens on mm -hmm. January 5th. That's unthinkable. That is yeah. unthinkable considering yeah. especially the vote suppression that went on in Georgia. Yes. And I think her point is we get blinkered, right? We get yeah. so focused on January 6th that we don't see the utter miracle and the human-driven, organizing, good miracle of January 5th. And I think the larger point is it sucks right now, stipulated. <laughs> it sucks. And it sucks. And it's speaking sucks of that, poetry, I mean, it sucks right now. If sucks. I say it, if I say it in a sort of lilting voice, no, it sucks. It sucks. But I think that we forget that this stuff happens in ebbs and flows. 
that it will always be sort of two steps forward, one step back. That is sort of the nature of progress, particularly when you have authoritarians and fascists mm-hmm. who are warping systems. And I think it's really useful to remember that January 5th was kind of a quasi miracle done mm-hmm. within the four corners of constitutional democracy. And we will have those again. It doesn't mean that there aren't very serious impediments, but what it does mean is that we can't blind ourselves to the ways in which the system holds. And the system held in no small part in my view because of some of these women doing this thankless work in the book. But I think the system holds also because we continue to believe that it's better to have a system than to have chaos. Chaos, you know, street fighting, like, you know who gets nailed first, Mary? You and me. <laughs> like, yep. You know, it's not good. And so I nope. think we have to just say that, that, and you're quite right, and we've talked about this too, so much that we thought was codified law are soft norms. Those norms need to be bolstered. They need to be enshrined in law. Yep. But that requires people believing in them. That mm-hmm. requires people saying, my vote although statistically insignificant matters and I am going to vote. And even if, you know, everyone is telling me that the system is rigged and the fix is in, that I'm going to do it anyway. And so I think maybe just to go back to what you sort of led with, one of the things that I really come down in this book is that one of the special magical powers that I think some of these women have is imagination, moral mm-hmm. imagination. Yeah. And I think moral imagination, it's not that it's uniquely the province of women or women lawyers, but I do think it is something that, and this is when Sherilyn Eiffel talks about empathy, which is I think a component of moral imagination mm-hmm. that comes easier to women because this has been so hard fought. Right. And, and vulnerability is also uh, a necessary component of that as well. Um, and, and I think in, to Charlotte Eiffel's point and yours, um, in forgetting January 5th, and I, I get why people do, you know, it's been kind of crazy since then. But we, on the one hand, fail to recognize... Uh, the extraordinary work of people like Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown and many others um, in in accomplishing that goal. We we fail to to recognize the extent to which voter suppression is a massive problem in this country that's getting worse uh, along with voter subversion. Um, we forget that Stacey Abrams did this in the wake of having, in my view, one. <laughs> the gubernatorial election. Um, but, you know, shrugged it off, probably maybe wrote a romance novel in between, but then got right back to work, even became president of United Earth. Come on, the woman is a multitasker. So we forget that too. And I think that uh, that kind of um, failure to keep, those hard-won victories uh, in front of mind leads us to a situation in which Senator Warnock might lose to one of the worst candidates for Senate in the history of this country. You know, it's so it's it's so sort of a a massive uh, failure of respect <laughs> to forget about January fifth um, and not understand what forgetting that entails. 
So, so Mary, whenever I'm on your show, the part where I can just see in my mind's eye, all the listeners get up and like go to the bathroom and like, you know, pour themselves like a beer and come back is when I start talking about like systems failure. Right. And when I start saying, you know, this is a malapportioned Senate. This is the Electoral <laughs> College, right? 41 million people um, are like erased by the current structure yeah. of the Senate. I mean, we can talk all day about dark money. Thanks, Supreme Court. And gerrymandering. <laughs> thanks, Supreme yep. Court. And racial mm -hmm. gerrymandering. Thanks again, Supreme. Like, we can talk all day about yep. the complete circle of abuse of power that has allowed like five of the six justices on the conservative supermajority to be appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. And then, you Sorry, know, I had to go get a beer. Why don't you give the front desk people? I got to that go doesn't get some like represent half the population. Like we can talk all day about how, and then what do they do? Oh, they restrict voting. <laughs> Amazing. Right. I mean, Samuel Alito writing in the Dobbs decision, you know, women, if you don't like this, just go out and vote as the court is like taking away the right to vote is just like, beer out your nose funny if you all are just coming back from having poured yourself a beer and like <laughs> it's ridiculous that this system is as completely warped and distorted as it is so yes. you are not going to get me to like defend the status quo because it's insane <laughs> but you would never <laughs> but you are going to get me to say that there are good people working right now on fixing the electoral count act and mm -hmm. on you know doing away with the electoral college and good people who are working on fixing, you know, a malapportioned Senate and serious structural Supreme Court reform. This is not stuff we have to imagine or invent. It's there, but we need to buy into it. Yeah. And I guess what I'm positing for you is in the binary of, you know, everything about the legal system and the constitutional system sucks. <laughs> and it's all perfect and magic. And, you know, Donald is magic and can't be prosecuted because he's God. There is all this complexity of work, of structures and systems work that requires a buy-in from every one of us. And in the end of the day, the reason I kind of wrote a little pink book about all those structures and systems and the last three chapters are about voting is because I really think we can do this. Mm -hmm. But saying it all sucks gets us nowhere. Right. Although it does suck. But not, not all of it. No, but not all of it. And and one of the things that I I really love about this book is because the stories, each story is this is a standalone, discrete narrative. Right. You don't need any of the other stories to understand each one as it unfolds. However, um, there is this overarching sense that each one of these women, each one of the fights they're fighting is. Uh, a different facet of the problem we face. And that, again, is a problem that uh, the systems are working as they're intended by the founders and other powerful white men. Um, and that democracy, America has never been a democracy and needs to be, but that each of them in their own way brings to the fight um a different weapon. Uh, so it isn't, it isn't just about litigating. It can't be, it isn't just about organizing. It can't be, it isn't just about an, the issue. It can't be. It's all of those things. It's, as you say, moral imagination, it's lobbying, it's education, it's voting and organizing and litigation. And um, in understanding it that way, I think it gives, 
it does give everybody a sense of purpose and a sense of where they can find uh, their power. It's always so fun to talk to you because you're such a, a careful reader. And that was absolutely, for me, that was the mandate, was that everybody could find something in here to say, you know, I didn't really understand about, um, you know, redistricting reform, but I kind of do now. Or, you know, I didn't really fully understand, um, you know, the nature of, uh, you know, the line between protected free speech under the First Amendment and incitement to violence in Charlottesville. And to find a path to just think about what my part, what my buy-in could be here. And you don't have to be a lawyer to do this. I mean, this book is not for lawyers, uh, but I think you have to believe, as you're saying, in the project. And I've said this so many times on your show, you know, if we had a plan B that was better than the one that I'm putting forth, you know, if we could just like figure skate our way to a, like a better democracy, I would be for that. Cause like, it's not great. But we don't. And I, what can I play my, can I play tennis? On our <laughs> way play tennis. Cause I figure skating nuts so much, but I see your point. I'm th thinking of those like fast backward skaters, but yeah, you yeah. can play tennis. But I think, <laughs> I think, I think, you know, this is what we have. And maybe I'll, I'll say this cause I think it's important. I think that Listen, I went to law school as 50-50 women, right? Yep. <laughs> when I, the book starts with three women on the Supreme Court, like tearing down uh, the Solicitor General of Texas, who's trying to um, ding Roe v. Wade and Casey. I, we yep. were really close in 2016, much closer mm -hmm. than we are now. Right. And I think it's just easy to fall asleep and to say, oh, we're equal. We got equality. You know, we can have credit cards now and we no longer have to, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had to hide her pregnancy uh, when she was a law professor because she would have been fired. Right. So we, we like to be really sanguine about how equal and fair and just everything is. And one of the things the last six years has taught us, like often with a punch in the neck, is it is not fair. It's not equal and it's not just. Oh, and coda to that. If you were a person of color, if you were poor, if you were elderly in this country, if you were an immigrant, it never was. Right. And so I think maybe the benefit of this awakening, if you can call it that, to the flaws in the system is that we can all see it now. We can all see. Mm -hmm. And there is some utility in the painful realization that we had so much magical thinking about equality and dignity and, you know, the protection of the law and the force of law, we were just sleepwalking our way through this thing. And right. it sucks to have to wake up from that. But at least now it's very clear to me where the fault lines are and where the fights are. Yeah. And and the, the fact that you're, uh, the book is bookended <laughs> by two Supreme Court decisions, both of which involve three female justices um, and uh, the most recent basically re uh, relegated women to second class citizenship. It's, it's a gut punch. Uh, it's again, nobody should be surprised that it happened. It's still a gut punch. And this isn't to demoralize anybody. This is something you and I say often, we need to have our eyes wide open and by understanding what can happen in, in a very short period of time, yeah, okay, women women got the right to credit cards in, what, the 70s? And now they don't have a right of to control what they do with their own bodies. Uh, so 
it is a it, it is a painful but necessary reminder that none of this is no, nothing is an endpoint. Nothing ends. It's all a process, and we need to take a, a page out of the rights playbook and understand that, and never say, "Oh well, hey, you know, we got this right, and uh, everything's cool now, and we're just going to go chill." And not have to worry about it again. Because clearly that's absurd on its face. It's one of the prices you pay. If you want to be a citizen in a democracy, you have to vote. You have to, you have to pay attention. You have to be connected. And, you know, if, if we've learned nothing else, that it's, yeah, the Supreme Court can, um, can draw out, not draw out, what am I trying to say? The Supreme Court can grant rights. They don't guarantee them. That's up to us. That's exactly right. And, and I think, you know, for me, again, you know, I was so struck this whole year by how much I didn't know, not about, you know, you, you, you sort of cop to not having heard about Pauline Murray and people should definitely uh, watch the movie. My name is Pauline Murray. Um, I, I didn't know about Peggy Cooper Davis and all the work she did decades ago again never learned it in law school. Nobody ever said, oh, you know, this is why bodily autonomy is protected in the 14th Amendment. This is what it was to be a slave and to be, you know, raped forcibly for economic purposes. This is what it was to split up your family, to take your children away, to have husbands and wives separated. That's why the 14th Amendment contains a right to bodily autonomy and family mm -hmm. integrity. And when you hear Republican senators be like, oh, that's not anywhere in, the, in history. That's not in the Constitution. It's because that's been erased. Because yeah. all that work has been erased. And if you right. listen to the debates, it's spectacularly explicitly clear that they were trying to give freed slaves the rights to control their bodies, their reproductive systems, their families, who they married, and how they raised their children. So that's been erased. I never learned that in law school because somebody decided that wasn't material. And it is why you had during Katanji Brown Jackson's hearing, one senator after another talk about this as though it's this fanciful cotton candy, right? So yeah. one of the things that you're saying that I think is so important is that these stories are there. They're there. <laughs> we just forgot them. We forgot yeah. to tell them. We forgot to teach them. And at the risk of saying the dread words like critical race theory, the efforts now to erase more and more and more of the underpinnings of structural racism, of structural sexism and misogyny and homophobia is an effort to get to exactly what you're describing, which is a place where this all makes perfect sense because we don't remember anything else. Right. So what I love about both writing the book and sort of doing all this deep work, listening, you know, to Dorothy Roberts, listening to Peggy Cooper Davis, mm -hmm. unearthing the work of, of, um, of, um, of Polly is that all of this work has been done. It's right there. You can check yeah. it out on Amazon, <laughs> but like, we don't tell it. We don't. And, and also I just, I need to apologize. I just, I'm mortified. I keep saying Katanji Jackson Brown <laughs> and it's all Jackson Brown's it's fault. Jackson Brown's it's fault. the only yeah, reason yeah, yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ, justice, yeah. justice Jackson. Um, also, it's that Southern thing that Joyce White Vance, Joy, <laughs> Joyce White Vance does, too. you know. Anyway, um, and what's what sort of uh, should be a wake up call for all of us is that it is entirely up to us be, to to continue 
to tell the stories, to continue to educate ourselves and each other. Because if we don't, then that leaves this vacuum. And, and that's just an opportunity for the right to erase all of the other things that we need to learn and, and teach our children. And by the way, for those of you who aren't aware, there is absolutely nothing wrong with critical race theory. It's an actually quite valuable um, theory to help understand all sorts of things that I'm not going to get into right now because it's not why we're here, but there's nothing wrong with critical race theory. And it's also not taught in, it's not taught to children. It's not um, taught in kindergarten. No. Yeah. Or even high school. No. For the most part. Or so, even in college, unless you. Yeah. Unless yeah. you're pre-law or I something. Learned it, I learned it in law school. Yeah. Exactly. And I learned it because I read a book. Yeah. <laughs> so read a book guys. Um, so, you know, that, that's another thing we cannot just rest on. And that's power. And you've said you said this to to me and the rest of the nerds recently uh, in, in one of those rare moments of optimism for you. Uh, but it was also the same. It was the same show in which you called yourself a fucking asshole. So, <laughs> I, did. You know, yes, I, did. I don't know. It was one of those days. <laughs> um, but you you said, listen, um, we have we have the mechanisms to fix this. And it looks like we we will. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> In November, um, why are you be? <laughs> you no, I, no I'm shrugging because you know it's funny because like we have the votes, we have the will, we have the ability, and you know the idea that this is just being stymied by a bunch of dark money, a yep. bunch of corporate self interest. I mean, yep. the problems here are not democracy problems; <laughs> they're no. broken democracy problems. <laughs> And, and you know, stymied by an entire political party that is anti-democratic and yeah. pro-fascism. I mean, that's yeah. kind of a problem uh, when when we're dealing with all of these headwinds. But I was um, in reading your book, especially the, the part about the Women's March. And, and I just remember thinking, oh, and, and, you know, how everything's unfolded in the last four years and all the complications with the 2020 election and how difficult it was to deal with. All of the multiple crises we, crises we were dealing with, uh, from Black Lives Matter protests to the election, the economy was COVID, and I'm like, you know, I I of, often focus on the fact that 12 million more people voted for Donald in 20 than in 2016, which is fucking heartbreaking. But then I think, okay, so almost eight million more people voted for Joe Biden, and a lot of Democrats maybe didn't vote because we care about COVID. So I, you know, that's something. Maybe that's something we have in our back pocket too. That that it's less of a concern. Maybe I'm just, you know, trying to make myself feel better. But you know, Republicans weren't. The Republican vote wasn't wasn't suppressed by fears of COVID. They well, were in was fact wanting when, to spread I think it. I think it was suppressed in some sense when Donald said, "Don't vote well, by mail," right? But he's he still going to do that. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know. So I mean, he was bargaining against interest there because he was telling people um, who were his people um, stay home rather than vote by mail. And that didn't didn't help him. But, uh, you know, I think one of the things that has changed and I'm one of those people who's like looking at Kansas and looking at Michigan and looking at, mm -hmm. you know, Alaska. And I think women are fired up. And I think that uh, something really quite seminal is happening right now. And and look, it's worrisome when you see the disparity between, you know, men and women and how they're polling. I mean, I think yeah. one of the, the things that scares me 
is the optics of a Supreme Court in which you have three women who will be persistently in dissent for years to come, two of whom are women of color, right? Like it looks yeah. terrible. It seems to be kind of a, a, a massive ratification of the structural problem we've been talking about the whole time. But if I'm right that something is going on, that people are looking around, I think one of the things that's happening is that these stories are really landing. You know, the yeah. stories, these, these, whether it's, you know, that the asylum seekers who were shipped up to Martha's Vineyard, who were just had heartbreaking stories of why they were seeking to come to this country, or the women who are literally left to be septic before they can terminate a, a not viable pregnancy. I mean, those stories are salient and and Rebecca Traster, who I quote several places in the book, mm -hmm. always says that what the other side is great at doing is telling stories, even if it's about a zygote. I mean, they're right. just so good at animating that zygote with like twinkly blue eyes and chubby cheeks. And, you know, it's a zygote. <laughs> and I think that we have actual real suffering and yeah. hardship and vulnerability and inequality and we don't tell the stories. So I think one of the right. things that you're describing both with COVID and I would say with Dobbs is an opportunity to step into this like conversation and say like, no, actually climate change, Puerto mm -hmm. Rico, you know, actually women dying, Dobbs, actually, uh, you know, federal abortion ban, federal personhood law. And right. I think those are stories that people are receptive to. Right. And the story about what we can do when we show up uh, and what what kinds of changes we can affect, because it isn't just about um, getting enough senators to um, pass voting rights, although that's important. It's not just about having enough senators to um, make sure that Roe is codified uh, into federal law or that we save the House so that we don't have Jim Jordan <laughs> reopening Benghazi investigations and impeaching Joe Biden for no reason. It's also about changing the system in the, in ways that it can be changed. So it, there is more equity uh, in, in this country. And that would be getting rid of the filibuster, uh, changing, getting rid of the electoral college and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, so again, um, the power is in the story and the nar your narratives are just so compelling and uh, important. And again, it's beautifully, a beautifully written book, uh, which everybody needs to go get and read now. I'm taking up a lot of your time, but I feel like I would be completely remiss if we didn't talk about uh, a woman who was going to be one of the chapters in volume two of uh, Lady Justice, <laughs> that would be Tish James, uh, Attorney General of New York. Uh, just any quick quick thoughts on on uh, what is uh, a reasonably interesting development out of New York today? I, I mean, it's spectacular, and it hits all the points you made. You know, this is somebody who very carefully built a sweeping, I would say, far bigger swing than I thought, uh, case right. not just against Donald Trump, not just against the 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 company, but against the kids, against the family, and did so with you know again behind the scenes toil work you know a team of people working away on this. I mean, for me, this is it, it's like uh, Fannie Willis right mm -hmm. in in Georgia who is also doing the same black women both um, who yep. are doing, you know, this yeoman's work 
for which, you know, history may or may not credit them, but like lets you and I credit them because a lot of people thought that this was too ambitious, too much. Mm-hmm. He's untouchable. You know, we, we've seen all the themes that let him escape. I call him a greasy watermelon in a recent, <laughs> you know, you just think you got your arms around the greased watermelon and he slides away, but bless them, you know, they just like will keep grabbing. I know it's once you think of that image, it's really hard to let go of and kind of spoils watermelon for the rest of the year. But, okay. I don't like watermelon. Okay, so I'm good. Well, I love you're, it. You're good. I love it. But I, I think that, I think this is just every single theme that I tried to to pick out about these are not trivial powers, you know. Right. <laughs> the power right. to investigate, to subpoena, to force somebody to sit down and take a deposition. These are huge powers, and they are available to any woman who wants to pick up the tools of the law and use them. And so for me, I guess I just think this reinforces this basic theme of these women are extraordinary. They're also very ordinary. If you look around, they are everywhere. And I think that instead of like buying the Tish James mug or, you know, I think we have to think really, really carefully about what it is that she's doing and how we scale it up and Mm -hmm. how we support it, how we elect people like that in every single state. Yep. And how we vanquish the sort of feeling of nihilism that nothing can ever change because everything, as we said earlier, sucks. I just right. think that way is the assured path to the demise of everything we are fighting for, you and I. Exactly. And I that is hopeful. That that never gives- thought you'd hear it from this guy, did you? Little hope? Little tiny well, filament of hope. I've, I've seen. I've seen it. I've seen. You know, one does not write the book you just wrote if if one does not have hope. So, uh, I'm incredibly grateful that you did write it. Um, and again, everybody needs I'm to hold to, it up just so people yeah, can see please. that it's bright I, pink. Um, it's bright pink. It's bright pink, and it's incredible. Um, well, thank so, you, Mary. Dahlia, this was such so cool for me to have you all to myself. Um, I know you're you have you love me best, right? You of course. Of my, course. My, each of my kids says to me, You love me best, right? It's okay. And the answer is always yes. Understood. Yes. yes. Whoever's asking. Um you say that to all the nerds. No, no nerd has ever <laughs> asked me before. So so far. None it's is just as troubled you. as this one. <laughs> um, but this this is incredible. Uh and the book has helped me understand things in a way that that uh, makes me feel better about uh, some things. Anyway, <laughs> um, and I wish you luck for the be- the rest of the week. I'm sure I have I can't even imagine what your schedule is like because you know both of my books came out during COVID, so I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> it's 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 back. It's happening. Um, I'm very excited for you to see them come through the door with a battering ram <laughs> and a, like a, a, a hatchet. Like whatever is going to happen next is going to be amazing. Um, yeah. But I think I you need just, to get in touch with the front desk. I'm and, going to do that right now. I hope it's a fruit basket. Please re- report back. <laughs> um, it's not a fruit basket hotel. Um, I think I just want to say, Mary, because I really, um, you know, appreciate what you do. And I know 
both of us frequently feel like we are saying the same things over and over. I often say to my editor, like I have written this piece a thousand times. I cannot write this piece again. Like if I write the walls are closing in piece and then like, <laughs> you know, learn that they're not like greasy watermelon. I just, but I think that what you have sort of dedicated yourself to doing like with this show and with the other work you're doing, which is keeping a chronicle and, you know, holding power to account and not letting people be lied to is just, again, I think it's the work of, of the book, but it's also, I think, the essential work of democracy. So I really want to thank you because I don't know if I thank you often enough. So thank you. You thank me way too much. And I really appreciate that. But, uh, you know, you inspire me. I, I have been um, reading your work long before I met you. Uh, and it is brilliant and you are brilliant and inimitable. And, um, I am grateful to everything you do. I'm particularly grateful that you're one of the nerd Avengers. Cause that just makes me happy. <laughs> Best nerd ever. I won nerds. I won. Thank you're you. pretty good <laughs> fucking nerd. I have to say, <laughs> you know. but, uh, seriously, Dahlia, this was incredible. Um, and I appreciate it everything you do Thank and you. hopefully i'll see you tuesday with the rest of the not quite so favorite nerds okay thank you <laughs> all right take care thanks for having me bye bye well that was incredible i'm really happy that dahlia was able to be here and spend so much time because again her book just came out on tuesday so uh book launch week can be something of a trial, you know, especially now that uh, people are out in the world. Uh, so again, um, forget about my recommendation. Hillary Clinton recommends this book. Okay, like she tweeted about it. So that is something that we should all take to heart. Again, it's called Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Uh, I hope that uh, we will see you on Tuesday uh, for our next strategy session with the Nerd Adventures. That's 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific at youtube.com slash Politicon. And of course, uh, we'll have our regular Thursday night show next, uh, let's see, at 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, 4 p.m. Pacific, also at youtube.com slash Politicon. And uh, when you're on Politicon's YouTube page, please subscribe to uh, Politicon's channel. It, it doesn't cost anything. It just helps us uh, get our numbers higher. Uh, like the episode and click on this bell because that way you will be sure to get every video that drops, uh, not just the episodes, but the shorter videos I'm doing anytime we have uh, an emergency session, which we did yesterday, uh, to talk about everything that's happening with Tish, Tish James and uh, in New York. Um, and that is it for tonight. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate all of your great comments. And uh, have an amazing weekend. And until next Tuesday, please stay safe and be kind.